0: You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 13th of March, 2023, on Monocle 24. Israeli cabinet minister finds Washington, D.C., an unusually unwelcoming destination. An unsurprising bumper year for European arms imports. And when is it okay for employees of national broadcasters to go off script? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Daniela Pellet and James Rogers will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll hear from Dr Caroline Larrington about her new book explaining why there's more to the Norse myths than horned helmets and longboats. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I am joined today by Daniela Pellet, Managing Editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and by James Rogers, Associate Professor of International Journalism at City University of London. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi, Andrew. Um, We do have to talk at the top about what our guests are wearing. Daniela is, as usual, just here in her England shirt, but we're we're used to that by now. Um, James, who I do feel like we should be addressing as Rogers, James Rogers, you are an... One of the rare times I wish we had audio, not audio, video output as well as the audio. Uh, you are actually wearing, listeners, I am not making this up, a, a tuxedo and black tie.
1: I am, Andrew. Um, and, uh, I, well, there's a couple of reasons. But the main reason I'm wearing this tonight is because I know we're going to be discussing the BBC later in the standards. And, <laughs> and as you know, when the corporation first started back in the last century, I believe it was customary for the newsreader out of the evening news to appear in a dinner jacket, even though it was no video then either, obviously.
0: Uh, I believe that is actually the case. It's, it's kind of disappointing that th- those standards have slipped.
1: Which is exactly why I'm trying to bring them back up again.
0: Y- you have not, I rather regret to say, however gone full top hat. I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> Difficult, of course, to get the headphones on over it. Do you, do you think at the time the BBC made special extended headphones that would fit over a
1: top hat? I suppose they had to take their top hats off when they got in the surely, studio. Probably, surely, surely, surely not.
0: <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we will be coming back as James has cunningly uh, foreshadowed to the BBC and matters arising. But we will start in the United States where if the recent collapse of three banks, Silicon Valley, Silvergate and Signature is about to prompt the complete implosion of American capitalism, the stock markets are taking a remarkably insouciant view of it. The Dow Jones actually up uh, nearly half a percentage point. Uh, US President Joe Biden, speaking earlier, sought to reassure his fellow citizens that their deposits were safe and that the federal government would do whatever it, whatever it took, rather, to ensure that it remained that way. Well, we're joined, first of all, by Chris Chermak, our Washington DC correspondent, who was a finance and economics reporter in a past life. So this is an exciting day for Chris. Um, Chris, d- does there appear to be any risk of contagion from these bank failures?
2: Uh, yes, Andrew, there does appear to be some risk of contagion. That's that's essentially why, as you mentioned, Joe Biden came out uh, today to to give a speech, trying to reassure everybody that they have this crisis well in control. And the risk of contagion really is just a, a general one of fear, if you will. Part of the reason that Silicon uh, Valley Bank. Collapsed is because of the higher interest rates that we're seeing right now, of course in the US and in Europe and elsewhere as well They've struggled with that they've struggled to sort of you know They have a lot of low interest loans to small businesses around around the country startups uh, venture capital firms those kinds of things and they've struggled to cover that with their deposits so now the contagion if you will, is kind of like everybody looking for, well, who's next? Which other bank is weak? Which other bank doesn't quite have enough money, enough capital to pay for their deposits if people start pulling them out. That's kind of where the contagion is, rather than a direct one, if you will, from Silicon Valley Bank itself. It's this this game that we're playing of looking for, well who's next? And as you did mention though, you know, Wall Street is taking this mostly in its stride. And that's partly because the who's next game is all about sort of more smaller Medium sized banks, most of the big banks in the US, they've learned from the past, they've learned from the last financial crisis in 2008. They have a lot of money in the bank, if <laughs> pardon the pun. Uh, and so they are well capitalised. They can handle this crisis pretty well. It's more a question of those smaller, medium-sized banks that might have taken you know, bad risks, given out too many too many loans and now struggling with the higher interest rates.
0: I mean, though the market is slightly up or has been pretty steady all day, some individual bank shares are taking a bit of a battering. And obviously, the frame of reference, people keep reaching back for is 2008 uh, when the failures of a couple of banks precipitated what was a serious global financial crisis. Does anybody seriously believe there's any danger of anything like that?
2: Well, everyone is is sort of referring back to 2008, which incidentally is when I got my start as an economics and finance reporter, as you alluded to earlier. And I think, you know, I will say that one of the big differences, you know, I remember back in those days, the Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson kind of going into a briefing with Congress and and giving this very sort of behind the scenes you know speech to them saying you have to do something, you have to intervene, we need hundreds of billions of dollars to bail out the banks. And you had all these people in Congress kind of coming out ashen-faced after that, uh, realizing just how serious this was. This is not quite that. Silicon Valley Bank, yes, it is the second largest bank in history to fail in the U.S after a bank that failed in 2008, Washington Mutual, so there is that link. But that said, as I I alluded to, there aren't that many other major banks that are in the same kind of position, so we're not looking for the next major bank to fail. And on top of that, I have to say, you know, the U.S., as I said, not only the banks, but also the government has learned its lesson here, so if there is a risk of financial contagion, What Joe Biden is doing, what the Federal Reserve are doing, they are getting out in front of this. So Joe Biden said he would protect all depositors, all deposits from Silicon Valley Bank. That's a pretty big step, but it's the kind of step they've learned from 2008. The Federal Reserve, too, is already now saying we are stepping in. We will loan any bank in need the money to get to get past this. They've sort of reopened the lending facility, another thing they did in 2008 as well. So a lot of the reason that we're not as worried as we were back in 2008 is because we've learned some of the lessons from back then on how to handle this.
0: Uh, and just finally, Chris, while we have you, uh, some brief thoughts on the AUKUS meeting. This is the Australia- UK-US uh, intelligence and defence convergence. Is it as big a deal for the United States as it is for the two other components of it? Rishi? Sunak in the United States today and so forth?
2: Yes, I mean, uh, Joe Biden would have hoped that this would have been the the big news from from today. uh, As he's heading to San Diego, he'll be landing there in a couple of hours for this meeting. It is a big deal for the United States as well. I mean, as you know, uh, for that matter, they sort of muscled their way into this deal with Australia when Australia was initially going to buy French submarines. So that in itself gives you an indication that this matters for the U.S. And the reason it matters, of course, is that they have their own Indo-Pacific security strategy, their own desire to counter China in particular and China's influence in the region. There's some sense maybe that they've been losing that battle in past years, that China's been picking off sort of allies in in the region, different countries in the region through their own sort of strong-arm tactics. And so this is sort of an effort, I think, by the U.S. to really shore up their links with Australia, not that they were ever that particularly in doubt, but really to really strengthen those links with Australia by offering now as is expected, I think they're going to buy five nuclear submarines from the U.S. Virginia-class submarines. So this is a big deal for Biden as well to show that he cares about the Indo-Pacific and what's happening in the region and you know to counter China's influence in, for, against countries like Australia and others in the region.
0: Chris Chermak, our Washington DC correspondent, thank you very much for joining us Uh, Well let's bring James and Daniela in now and look at the relationship between Israel and the United States, both countries fond of fawning that neither has a greater friend or stauncher ally than the other Accordingly, an Israeli cabinet minister visiting Washington DC can usually embark in anticipation of a lavishly warm welcome. Such has not been the experience of Israeli finance minister Bezalel Smotrich whose only chance of getting into the White House would appear to be booking a ticket for the tour. It turns out that Americans read his recent remarks about the Palestinian town of Hawara to the effect that he believed it should be wiped out. Speaking to one of the few audiences which would have him, the Israel Bonds Organisation, Smotrich attempted to style this out as a slip of the tongue. Um, Daniela, first of all, uh, Bezalel Smotrich, basically, who is he and why is he finance minister?
3: Well, the reason he's finance minister is because Benjamin Netanyahu had to make some um, unholy deals with the far right to put together a coalition and return to government, which he did. Really, no boundary seemed to be uh, too uh, movable for him to uh, to cross. Um, Smotrich is somebody who seemed, in a way, a laughable figure in previous. Years, I don't think anyone a couple of years ago, you'd have said, Oh, he has would have a senior role in, in, in the government, would have taken this seriously at all. But here he is. Um, and treatment from Washington is, um, it's about as much of a snub as it's, it's possible, uh, to give. Although there were some calls for him not to be allowed uh, into America, and perhaps some, some would argue that he is a supporter of terrorism and that would have been, uh, legitimate. I think what's interesting as well is the reaction from the American. Jewish community, uh, mostly staunch supporters of Israel and apart from the Israel bonds and a couple of right-wing organisations, no one hosted him, let alone, uh, you know, lining up for, for, to be pictured, shaking his hand. He is pretty toxic right now.
0: I mean, it is peculiar, James. He would have had, I think, some idea that it wasn't all going to be hugs and handshakes when he arrived. From a, from a point of view of diplomacy and just the optics of it, and not that I have any great desire to um, offer sage counsel uh, to Mr Smotrich, who has outed himself as a, a fairly unpleasant human being, wouldn't he have been just better off staying at home, pretending he had COVID or something?
1: You would have thought so. I mean, there's plenty of precedents in diplomatic activity like this for suddenly not being to go or having a diary clash or something like that. So it does seem odd that he has decided to go, um, presumably having been able to anticipate what the reception or lack thereof would have been. Um, but maybe he just wanted to go to sort of make the point and see if things would change when he was there. But it, it is at, um, you know, as you said in your introduction, you know, the United States and Israel have always been very keen to stress the uh, the strength of their relationship, of their alliance. Um, but that, of course, is subject to certain strains at the moment. I mean, but the backstory stop, the backstop, the back the backdrop
0: was the word I was grasped before. God, it's only Monday, and I'm struggling with two-syllable words. The backdrop to this back in Israel, uh, of course, Daniela, is the judicial reforms that Benjamin Netanyahu appears to be trying to plough ahead with um, despite enormous protests, You know, up to and including um, actual Air Force reservist pilots saying that they won't report for duty. Uh, is Netanyahu, and you mentioned earlier that he was cutting all sorts of bizarre deals in order to try and stay in government. Is he really serious about ploughing ahead with this stuff or is he doing that thing of staking out an extreme position and hoping for enough pushback that he can, you know, come back from it and say it wasn't what I wanted anyway?
3: Well, that is classic playbook. We saw this with the nationality law Mm. uh, uh, as well. Um, But it's hard to see how he could water down this bill to make it acceptable for his right-wing um, constituency and um, the wider Israeli mainstream. I mean, we, we we are we're all living in a sort of. Post-truth world, and also in Israel too. I mean, he can argue just as well that these protests show the vibrancy of Israeli democracy. Um, for Smotrich, going to Washington and being snubbed—I mean, I would not like me to use a football analogy, but I would say that it's like you know, good
0: <laughs> practice for later, Daniel. <laughs> we are
3: we're we're Millwall, and we don't care. Actually, it's not about showing that he can be uh, an international diplomat. We're not playing by those kinds of rules anymore. He's speaking to his own constituency at back home saying i don't care i still went to washington uh depicting uh america staunch ally of israel american jewish community also staunch ally of israel as actually somehow israel haters that's as legitimate (laughs) as it gets now you may laugh but this is the narrative um within israel we we expect fake news from russia but the news is as fake a, 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 as that I think within some circles of Israeli society and there were also there's also been pushback from the American Jewish community here on Sunday there was a huge demonstration um in London by Israelis and otherwise you know, constituencies that strongly support Israel saying that this is um a huge assault on democracy the question is whether this will actually make any difference I mean have we got to a you know the the point that there's a um a huge divide between the diaspora and Israel? And will it make any difference?
0: James, Daniela is correct in pointing out that there are large numbers of concerned onlookers that Netanyahu seems disinclined to listen to, up to and including the actual president of Israel, uh, who warned in an address to the nation a few weeks ago that he feared that this might be the beginning of the end of Israeli democracy and perhaps would presage uh, the complete collapse of Israeli society, which is a Pretty grim warning. Mm. Might, however, Netanyahu take this sort of snub from the United States more seriously because so much of Israel's international standing is invested in its relationship with the United States and so much of its its international PR is vested in, as Daniela was alluding to there, that w- we are a democracy in the Middle East. And Netanyahu's not wrong when he says, yeah, the people here are perfectly entitled to protest against me in a way yeah. that they're not anywhere else in the region. But... Um, That's not going to last forever, is it?
1: No, it's not. I mean, I think there's probably a sense in the United States, and if you look at some of the reporting around um, Lloyd Austin, a Defence Secretary's visit recently, last week... Um, there was a sense that, um, particularly with um, rising violence with the Palestinians on a level that hasn't really been seen for the you know, best part of 20 years now, I think there's a concern probably in US policy making cir- circles where they see Israel as a very staunch ally against Iran, one of their big concerns in the wider region. And these kind of distractions being internal political instability, political protest and tensions with the Palestinians are, are a very unhelpful distraction from that at a time when, as always, the United States and Israel are trying to show they are united. I think this is probably causing concerns in US policy-making circles. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the
0: military aspect, because it does tee up the next item reasonably seamlessly, because what with one thing and another, it's not surprising that 2022 was something of a banner year for arms imports by European countries, most obviously Ukraine, but also by those countries aiding Ukraine and or seeking to avoid ending up like Ukraine. The Stockholm International Peace Research Institute has now issued its annual survey of the global arms trade, and earlier I spoke to Simon Weizemann senior researcher with the Cypri arms transfers program. I asked him what data had leapt out at him from this year's report.
4: I think the major one is that despite there is a small decrease, that is nothing really spectacular. Um, so it's sort of business as usual on the global scale. But of course, there are the, the devil is in the details. Um, Russia dipping down quite significantly. And of course, in 2022, uh, not surprisingly, Ukraine appearing as a major importer. But it wasn't just
0: Ukraine. Arms imports by major European countries up 47%. Is is that what we might think of as the Russia effect?
4: That is the Russia effect, yes. Uh, already from 2014, European countries have seen Russia as a, an increasing uh, threat. They have reacted to that. You remember the NATO goal of 2%. Of, spend, of GDP, spending on GDP, but also, of course, buying new weapons, uh, expanding the infantry. And that, of course, in 2022, um, is just added more to it, which will come in the coming years as new acquisitions.
0: Which countries have been the primary beneficiaries of that huge uptick in arms imports by Europe? Is it all the United States?
4: No, it's not all the United States. The United States plays a major role because it supplies, Some of the really high-end combat systems, like combat aircraft, but also other states are um, benefiting from that. Germany, France, uh, everybody gets orders in larger or smaller amounts. And of course, then there are the the South Koreans, slightly odd one out, but they have landed some major orders, uh, including from Europe. A very, very massive order from uh, from Poland.
0: Um, that decline in Russian exports that's uh, gone from 22% of global sales to 16% of sales, so it's still a player, just not as much of one. Uh, is that to do with Russia's sort of the pariah status it has acquired over the last year? Or is there an element of it that the last year or so actually hasn't been much of an advertisement for Russian kit?
4: Well, actually, the the ones that we look at the last five years, because most of that is the result of earlier issues, part of it since 2014, a lot of pressure from the US, but also other European states, not to buy, to, on, on potential buyers of Russian weapons, and actually buyers of Russian weapons, to stop buying Russian weapons or not to buy Russian weapons, and that has effect. In 2022, that pressure has only increased. Um, but there are also the effects that Russia has been under the sanctions since 2014, which leads to problems with Russians' development of weapons and thus also its export or what it can offer for export. Uh, and then, of course, now 2022, the, the effect of the weapons not doing very well in Ukraine, but that will only have an effect later uh, in coming years.
0: Uh, and just finally, you mentioned earlier that Ukraine has become the world's third biggest importer of arms, which is obviously no surprise at all. It is fighting a war for its survival. But, but are there any surprises or incongruities, do you think, among the countries around Ukraine near the top of the list? I think a lot of people might be startled to learn that, that Qatar and Australia uh, both rank so high.
4: Yeah, um, Australia isn't really that weird, of course, it's a substantial country which is looking more and more at China as an issue, Um, and it has a number of large orders in recent years which are being fulfilled, so that's why it's shooting up. Australia is expanding its military force. Qatar is one that is a bit more difficult to explain, partly because Qatar just doesn't talk about what its defence policy is, why it does things. And then now it's buying very rapidly a whole new air force, 10 times as big as the previous one, a whole new navy, 10 times as big as the previous one, uh, and also other systems, all very quickly. They have the money, they have had issues with Saudi Arabia, definitely, some issues with Iran, but it's difficult to really explain why Qatar is doing what it's doing.
0: Uh, Simon Vazeman at Cypri speaking to me earlier that full report is available from Cypri's website. Uh, James uh, to go back to what we were discussing there about the the effect on Russian arms sales that the current war might have. Is that going to be perhaps another unintended consequence of this from Russia's point of view, that they have put their much vaunted military kit into the field, and it turns out that a lot of it doesn't seem to work all that well?
1: It may well be. It may well be. But I would also imagine, uh, and I guess Russia is probably having to take this into account now, they're going to not be so keen to export as much as they normally would either, because Nobody on either side, I don't think, foresaw this war going on as long as it did. Certainly they didn't from the Kremlin. You know, this was always supposed to be over very quickly. It became pretty apparent pretty quickly as well. This time last year, the planning had been inadequate, the supplies were inadequate, and as you say, some of the military material was also inadequate. So I think that probably will play into it. But I suppose um, for the longer term at this stage, you know, the Kremlin is more concerned with securing what they can describe as a victory in Ukraine, rather than worrying about the consequences of arms sales. They have, after all, still got a very large war chest based on hydrocarbon exports.
0: Is the takeaway from this, Daniela, that for the foreseeable future, Europe is indeed going to be a uh, a bountiful market for arms exporters, which is a somewhat depressing thought for everybody who isn't an arms exporter?
3: Well, uh, I I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, that was uh, predictable. And in a way, I found it reassuring, if, if you can use that kind of language, that um that threats elsewhere in the world have not been ignored you know we 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 are eurocentric and ukraine obviously is a, is a huge international issue but china again remains um a, a security um aspect and i think that yeah, i'm, I'm I'm trying to see how you can say it's reassuring. It's reassuring that people are buying a lot of weapons. But a lot of this, um, a lot of the arms trade is to do with deterrence as much as it is to actually fighting uh, wars on the ground or in the air. And um, we need to take people in defence and in security um, realms need to take a holistic view of threats. Otherwise, we get into very, very dangerous spaces.
0: Well, let's move along to events here in the UK, where it has been confirmed that Gary Lineker will be returning to presenting Match of the Day this weekend, a development of enormous relief to Daniela in particular. For the benefit of non-UK listeners to whom this may as well be a recitation of Aramaic runes, a precy Lineker, a former footballer, now a freelance employee of the BBC, tweeted some mild, if clumsily expressed, political opinions. Everyone lost the run of themselves entirely. He suspended, large numbers of his colleagues quit in sympathy, the BBC then buckled and gave him his job back and that would appear to be that, until the next time we have exactly the same tedious row on form, probably Thursday. Um, James, uh, former employee of the BBC yourself, do you have any sympathy for the bind in which the BBC find themselves? My, My own view on this, and this is my possibly unsophisticated PR strategy which I would have advanced, is one, either just ignore it because everyone will get bored in 72 hours and move on to something else or two just every so often i kind of wish the bbc would just sort of address its critics in tones akin to get stuffed
1: yeah i think so i mean i think they got this completely wrong and i think i'm quite sure privately they concede that it doesn't look as if you know whatever has gone on behind the scenes in the last 36 hours since um Uh, You know, I was only reduced to watching 20 minutes of (laughs) all but silent football on Saturday night when I'm used to 80 of commentary and analysis. The BBC never foresaw this unfolding the way that it did, and they didn't have a plan once but it but did start did, getting out of control. how did they not foresee
0: it unfolding the way it did? Because literally anybody, down to and including my neighbour's cat, could have told them that this is how it was going to unfold.
1: I agree, Andrew, and I wonder if, uh, I think the first time in its history, the BBC's Director-General has never made a programme, and so I don't know how well him and his senior team actually understand the way that the media works in that sense. I'm sure that Mr Davy has great skills in running large organisations, Organisations, but he has a background in marketing rather than actually broadcasting or programme making. Maybe didn't see the way this unfolding the way that it did. I, I think most people were surprised with the, the ripple effect that happened. It was in, in that once Gary Lineker said he wouldn't appear on the programme, two other very high-profile mm-hmm. ex-players immediately agreed they wouldn't do the same. And then suddenly, you know, not even decimated the, the BBC's. Particularly, football coverage over the weekend was was all but non-existent. So I think this probably was foreseeable, um, and I think anybody who had really thought this through, you know, thought what the consequences of the BBC's actions might be, it would probably have been better left ignored, or perhaps a quiet word with Gary Lineker out of the uh, public profiles. And whatever has happened in the meantime, Lineker doesn't seem to have had to concede very much in order to get back on the air this coming Saturday.
0: Well, indeed not, and um, Daniel, if we can set aside what I'm sure was your own considerable <laughs> grief and rage at match of the day being reduced to a mere 20 minutes with with no commentary or analysis i i i, I don't know i'm i'm Aghast, really, to think of you trying to fill your evening, uh, without it. But th- there is a, there is a, a wider question here of the propriety of somebody employed by a national broadcaster whose wages are paid by everybody's license fees, um, taking what some people would suggest is a controversial stance. Should someone in Gary Lineker's position, and he's not, to be clear, attached to, uh, the BBC's news output, I think we can agree that that's probably something that should be roped off and probably people who work in BBC News do need to be a bit careful about expressing their opinions. But he hosts a programme of football highlights. Should he be allowed to say whatever he likes?
3: Well, you know, even someone as completely sports ball illiterate as me, as you <laughs> like very, very often to point out, knows that Gary Lineker is something else, that he is a national treasure. Mm-hmm. You know, he, there are a few people that fit into that uh, uh, into that category, I am told by reliable sources that he never got as much as a yellow card or ticket or whatever it is. <laughs> he, uh, he
0: he he was never booked famously during
3: yeah. his illustrious career, which is saying quite something. And the fact is, he is not a journalist. He's a football uh, a football presenter, as well as being uh, a national icon. What he said was kind of. Uh, fairly mild and totally in keeping with all the other things that he said in the past. It was handled um, abysmally, um, and I credit social media hysteria to this and people also make taking that as the real world. Which maybe it is. Maybe I've just taken the wrong colour pill. Maybe social media and Twitter offence is the real world. I don't know. <laughs> if it is, then uh, then th- then we're in um, we're in trouble. I mean. To put a slightly positive spin on it, to slightly disagree with uh, with you and James, I think there is something vaguely adorable the fact that the BBC, as an institution, is tying itself in so many knots to be um, to be impartial and fair. And I think something that other countries um, and other national media organisations would find it quite baffling because this is taking impartiality to a sort of a bonkers extent. No one is uh, suggesting that. Journalists shouldn't vote, for instance, or or sports presenters shouldn't, uh, you know, belong to, to political parties. The BBC is drawing up its guidelines again, and it, it really needs to. It's going to have an independent inquiry, which seems another slight waste of uh, uh, of money, but. This, this has happened before, it's going to happen again, and it makes us look a bit silly. Uh,
0: James, what should the rules be, though? I mean, I, I, I sort of suggested there that maybe if you are involved in BBC actual news, then mm. probably uh, you need to keep your opinions to yourself. But that said, I wonder, is that even true? If, if the rule just became, look, say what you like, think what you like, express it however you like, and allow the audience to decide
1: Yeah, I mean I think there is a distinction between news and sport, but I think it's also true to say and a number of people have pointed this out in the last few days if you look at the BBC's guidelines there is a clear suggestion that if you ask presenting sport, that's not as controversial for you to comment on politics. I think it's also useful, Andrew, for, for, particularly for listeners outside the UK to point out there's a much broader political context here mm. too. The current chairman of the BBC has donated significant money, uh, sums of money to the governing Conservative Party in the past. He's also may or may not have facilitated or assisted the previous Prime Minister Boris Johnson in getting a loan of £800,000. So I think the concern here is that because Lineker expressed an opinion against government policy that he has been curbed in a way that he might not have been if he'd pre- expressed an opinion in favour of government policy, a perception the BBC somehow bowing to government influence.
0: I mean, that right there, Daniela, I guess is the is the counterpoint. What if somebody in a broadly similar position to Gary Lineker at the BBC, not in news, but had tweeted enthusiastically in favour of deporting migrants to Rwanda? Would that have been the same controversy or would we just have had people arguing about free speech from absolutely reverse sides because the the usual rule with free speech is everybody thinks it's fine when it's free speech they agree with.
3: Well, if it was David Attenborough, then then yes. I mean, we're talking about much loved, popular um, presenters. You know, prime time. The whole family can watch this uh, this output, and I think that's that's key because. Um, it wasn't even that controversial. There's been lots of criticism of this. Uh, mm-hmm. of this bill. Uh, rather, unfortunately, he had to uh, compare it to Nazi Germany. And obviously, you know, that means he lost the argument. But that created <laughs> another whole, uh, uh, whole sideshow um, again. But th- I think there's, a, there's, a, um, there's an equation, really, how popular you are, how fun you are, how jolly you are, how totally apolitical you're supposed to be. And then if you speak out, um we have this 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 awful fury which is completely encapsulated you know maybe it's a it's a conspiracy because no one is talking about the actual bill
0: well indeed not it it does tell us something that there has been a much more I guess vituperative row about Lineker's comments on the thing rather than the thing itself but just a final thought on this James and it's about I guess the the, the institutional mindset of the BBC it does, look, looking at it from outside, I've never really worked there. I've done very small numbers of bits and pieces. But it, it always seems to be slightly scared. Uh, it, it's always looking for a way to avoid the argument. And is that just, is there a certain amount of actual institutional cowardice about standing up for itself in that respect? Or, or is it actually kind of a an admirable uh, keeping in mind that, you know, it, everybody pays a license fee. There are people on all sides of this and every other issue who all have their stake in the BBC, and somehow we have to represent them all. And I also wonder occasionally if the BBC overcompensates because it knows that yes probably most of the people who work there do fall broadly into the category of middle class latte slurping metropolitan liberals and they're acutely sensitive to that sort of criticism so they try and tack the other way and because they don't really understand that mindset they look ridiculous when they do it
1: I mean I think it's one of the courses I teach at the University of Andrew is the history of journalism now you might remember the BBC celebrated its centenary Mm -hmm. last year so it's just over 100 years old and that history has been littered with disputes with the government of the day. I mean, I think one possible interpretation is that the current, you know, at any given time, the leadership of the BBC has to negotiate a way through these political pressures. So it sometimes does that by appearing to to agree to the pressure from the government but on the other hand, you know, broadly speaking it's kept its independence, so I think that's one possible interpretation of it, but particularly at the dif- at the moment, we're living in very difficult circumstance for the BBC, um, particularly the Johnson government had ministers who were talking publicly about getting rid of the licence fee, the mm-hmm. way that it's been funded for a century um, and of course, you know, if you're going to set up a, a national broadcaster now, you wouldn't do it along those lines which is what is in effect, you know, a tax when everybody who's got a TV set in this country seems <laughs> absurd, lots of people don't even have TV sets these days and you know in the age of streaming it seems very odd but it still managed to to survive and to provide you know a very wide variety of content and that's obviously I think the way the BBC you know but it is very very much aware that in the changing technological landscape that is an increasingly difficult case to make and they want to be able to make it. James Rogers and
0: Daniel Pellet, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, when we consider what the ancient mythologies have given us, we tend to thank the Greeks and the Romans for the more rarefied highfalutin stuff and think of the Norse legends as largely peopled by battle-axe swinging buccaneers, swinging mead from the skulls of their enemies, i.e. all tremendously good fun but possibly light on for teachable moments. Not so, argues Dr Caroline Larrington, fellow in medieval English literature at Oxford University. Her new book, The Norse Myths That Shape The Way We Think debunks many misapprehensions, the skulls as mead glasses for one, and urges a fresh reading. I spoke to Caroline at Midori House earlier and began by asking how far our modern understanding of the Norse myths has drifted from the original.
5: Yeah, I think what has happened is that people have really, over the last 50 years or so, consumed the myths through retellings very often. Wagner was extremely influential and really shaped the way people in the 19th century thought about the myths. So too some of the early translators. And I think now, perhaps more than anything, it's the Marvel comic universe which has really reshaped the way that people think about Thor and Loki in particular, and perhaps Odin as well. So There's a sense in which these things are always being kind of mediated through popular cultural imaginings. But at the same time, people are often inspired, particularly if they go travelling in Iceland, to go and read the originals to find out where these ideas came from. And because there isn't a huge corpus of written material from the medieval period, you just need a couple of paperbacks if you want to get on top of what the real original stories look like. Do you think, though, popular culture
0: keeps returning to the Norse myths because it just seems, or at least in our imaginations, it has become more glamorous and swashbuckling and violent, whereas the popular imagination, perhaps, of Greek mythology, for example, tends rather more towards people in togas scratching their beards and thinking about democracy?
5: I think it's got something to do with the connection with Vikings. Everybody loves Vikings. They're dramatic. They dash around the world on longboats and they they fight in a a bloody and dramatic fashion. But I think it also has to do with the association, particularly in England, and from England spilling out into other English-speaking nations, of... Our own Scandinavian ancestors. When we think of the Scandinavians who settled here towards the end of the Anglo-Saxon period, their beliefs are kind of somewhere in in our ancient imaginations, I suppose. And we recognise the landscapes of the Norse myths as being more like the north of England than the Greek gods strolling around in olive groves (laughs) and so on. So I think they do kind of speak to us. They speak to us through the landscape, through the place names. And also, I think, because they're quite a small corpus of myths, you have families, you have fathers, sons, you have a long-lasting enmity between the gods and the giants. And you also have, as as Tolkien pointed out, this kind of stoic realisation that Ragnarok, the end of the world, is going to come and the gods are not going to survive it. And there's nothing they can do about it. And I think that appeals also to a kind of um, British stoicness, if you like.
0: <laughs> the book also gets into the degree to which the Norse myths have become something of a touchstone for some fairly unsavoury political belief systems, especially in modern Europe. Is Is that a complete misapprehension of the Norse myths? Or is it just another classic case of people seeing in source material what they want to see in it?
5: People see what they want to see, that's for sure. And I don't think there's any kind of innate idea of racial superiority baked into the myths in their original form. But there is, I I think, perhaps because, first of all, it's the association of the mythic corpus with particularly German nationalism in the 19th century, which then shaded very easily into kind of Nazi ideology. There has always been the sense that the idea that the myths of a particular group of people reflect something about that people and the land that they come from, that this may speak to a kind of superiority. At least that was how the Nazis saw it. And that makes these myths in particular quite attractive, I think, for alt-right white supremacists, particularly, of course, since the Scandinavians are tall and blonde (laughs) and blue-eyed and splendid examples of, of humankind, I suppose. And I guess also that the myths largely have powerful masculinity embodied in them, one which respects those who can swing the hammer and draw the sword, and that they appeal to a kind of patriarchal order that is perhaps on its way out in the modern world but still sees something to cling to there.
0: Well I was wondering if you thought that might be part of the appeal on the basis that nobody is ever going to write any glorious legends about call centre operators or content moderators.
5: I think it probably is something of the appeal but at the same time we don't actually want modern heroes anymore who just swing the sword and, and cleave people in two and go off with some treasure what we want uh, are conflicting heroes, ones which stop halfway through and go, oh, I don't know, is this the right thing? <laughs> um, do I want to die gloriously? If you've seen um, Robert Eggers film The North Man from last year there's exactly that moment of choice where the hero could sail off into the sunset with his lovely blonde pregnant uh, Slavic lady friend and live or he can stay behind in a futile attempt to avenge his family who really don't need avenging and die gloriously but kind of stupidly. And that's kind of the point of Egger's revisioning of, of this Viking myth in that film. The men tend to choose that kind of empty masculinity when the women are offering other possibilities. So I think the Viking myths, or the myth of the Viking and the Norse myths more generally, invite us to think about different kinds of masculinity, a sort of patriarchal order that's vanishing, a new kind of younger masculinity, if you like, if we think about Thor in the in the Marvell films, he's on a very steep learning curve. He's stopped whacking people with his hammer first and asking questions later. He's thinking quite a lot more than he did in the first movie. And he's, he's learning not to trust his brother, which is a, a, certainly a, a progressive move, I think. He's fallen in love, he cares about humanity, he's, and he's thinking more strategically. And we can see, I think, the ways in which the Thor movies, in particular, are redrawing the idea of the god and perhaps bringing him back to something more like the way he might have been regarded by ordinary people back in the ancient days, when he was always called the protector of mankind.
0: That was Dr. Caroline Larrington and her fine new book, The Norse Myths That Shape the Way We Think, is out now. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, James Rogers and Daniela Pellet, and also to Chris Chermak, who we heard from at the top of the show. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamantuan. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nicol, with editing assistance from Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.